In establishing the biblical worldview as compared to other world religions, we are focusing on the Lord's Prayer. And now we are at the line, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. How do other religions view evil? How do other religions outside of Christianity view the idea of temptation? And how do they deal with those things? We're going to find out on this episode of Revealing the True Light. There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. This is the fourth session on the Lord's Prayer and using the Lord's Prayer as a way of establishing the biblical worldview as compared to other world religions. It's a genius prayer, and it's amazing how line by line the biblical viewpoint is set apart in its uniqueness and very clearly shown as opposed to other world religions. Now, this is the fourth session, and we've come to the line, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What does that mean to be led into temptation? Now, recently, the Pope released a statement that he wanted to change that line in the Lord's Prayer, and he said it should rather be rendered, do not let us fall into temptation, which actually, I believe, is most likely a better rendering of the original Greek as far as conveying the essence of what Jesus was communicating, because I don't believe God tempts us. In fact, James said, and we may get to this scripture a little more later, if any man is tempted, let him not say that he's tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. And so God doesn't lead us into temptation. But the prayer should be, do not let us fall into temptation. In other words, prevent us from facing temptation. Well, what is temptation? It can mean to be tested or to be tried, but it also means to desire to do something that is especially wrong, untrue, unwise, or immoral. Temptation is a desire to engage in short-term urges for enjoyment that threaten long-term goals of purpose in your life. In the context of some religions, It would reduce it just to the idea that temptation is an inclination toward sin, an inclination toward the lower nature. And, of course, some religions don't even have a concept of quote-unquote sin. In fact, New Agers have no moral standards that are set in stone because they have no standard text that is a basis for their worldview. And so a lot of it is subjective. It's up to personal choice. One person may believe a certain lifestyle is perfectly acceptable and be a new ager. Another person may believe it's unacceptable and be a new ager, and yet they can't challenge each other's beliefs 
on most issues unless it's harmful to another human being. And of course, that's subjective as well. We as Christians have a biblical standard to go by, whether we like it or not. If it's in the Bible, and if it's clearly stated as being evil, then the draw, the allurement, the uh, the desire inwardly or the influence outwardly to partake of that is temptation. And many religions have texts that they consider sacred that make demands that a Christian would never feel is necessary, like Janus, who believed very passionately in nonviolence. It's called ahimsa. In fact, the symbol of their religion is an open palm with the word ahimsa in the center of the palm. And that means doing no harm to any living thing. And so that would be a guideline a Christian wouldn't necessarily go by. And a lot of New Agers and yoga advocates believe in that. Um, I remember in the first yoga ashram that I helped form back in 1970, we started an ashram and started classes in Daytona Beach, Florida. There was about four of us in the ashram that began teaching in the area. And we rented a house to use as the ashram. Unknown to us, it was infested with fleas. And of course, we believed in reincarnation, so we believed it was very wrong to kill any living thing because that essence of life would eventually evolve into a human being. And so we put up with it. It was very excruciatingly difficult uh, because we'd be sitting there for an hour meditating and getting bitten all over. And finally, I like to put it in these terms, Finally, after about four days, we all backslid and said, whether it's bad karma or not, we're buying some black flag. (laughs) And we got rid of the fleas. But Janus would feel that that was very wrong to do, to kill those creatures. The foundation in Christianity concerns the nature of temptation because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. That's the basis for our definition of temptation, because the enemy, the serpent, beguiled Eve into thinking that what she was doing was right. And very curiously, that first temptation was not to get drunk, not to do drugs, not to commit adultery, but to become like God, which actually Eve already had. She already had God-likeness. Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, but the enemy convinced her to take a different path than the one God had chosen for her, for the image of God to be in her life. And isn't that a lot of what false religion does? There's decent people, good people, God-loving people that embrace different worldviews other than a biblical worldview that really want to be like God. They want to have a, a character that emulates or imitates the divine nature of what they conceive to be the divine nature, and yet they try to take a path other than the one God said is necessary. For Adam and Eve, it was the tree of life. For us, it's a tree of death. It's the tree where Jesus died. It was referred to, the cross was referred to as a tree, and it may have literally been a beam nailed to a tree for all we know. But in a sense, that's a symbolic statement that 
the tree of death where Jesus assumed our judgment became a tree of life for us if we go there. So anyway, Satan tried to lure Adam and Eve into his net of disobedience with a temptation that they were susceptible to. And that's the enemy's plot. That's the enemy's plan is to find your area of vulnerability and then to entice you in that way. And that's happened in this generation in a massive way. From 1990 to the year 2000, Christianity only grew 5% in our country, in the United States of America, while simultaneously New Age spirituality grew 240%. Why? Why are so many people turning to the occult, turning to New Age spirituality, turning to investigating other religions? I think a lot of the problem is dead Christianity, lifeless Christianity, ritualistic ceremonial Christianity that has repackaged what Jesus said in, in, in a way that is totally different than what the early church had. Uh, Paul, in fact, said that the kingdom of God is not in word but in power. Now we go to church to hear a sermon, and we think that's the sum of what Christianity is. And yet, God's concept is a transformational power that revolutionizes a person's life, an encounter with Jesus that does far more than what philosophy or theology can do. All right, so how can we, as Bible believers, have a basis for understanding when temptation is being dealt our direction? And what sources do uh, temptation come from? Well, first of all, it comes from the lower nature, that inclination toward evil. It comes from the world system around us that's corrupt, and it comes from satanic forces, evil spirits. I do not believe Satan is with every human being every single day, tempting and wooing them into his dark net, because Satan is not omnipresent. But I do believe he has an army of demonic powers underneath him who have caught his spirit, his purposes, his tactics, and they execute his purposes in the earth. And so sometimes that allurement into evil, into the net of sin, comes from a demonic source. And they're all mixed together, right? So we have a basis for knowing when something can be labeled temptation. In the Old Testament, they had 613 commandments that they had to abide by in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In the New Testament, we have 1,050 commandments that have now become our standard. And some of those commandments are positive. Some of those commandments are negative. Just like the Bible said quite a few times, love one another. That's not optional. That's a commandment, right? And so it's something we have to abide by. And when we move out of love and become vindictive, hateful, judgmental people, then we have succumbed to temptation, the temptation not to walk in love. And so there's levels of it altogether, uh, some serious sins, some not so serious sins. It's not always a demon or a devil. All right, let, let me take you to the main passage where we deal with temptation. It's James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. 
Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Temptation is not enjoyable. It's endurable, but it's not enjoyable. For when he has been approved, when you pass through that season, you do what's right. When he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, of course, that may be futuristic in a very spectacular way when we're crowned with eternal life and receive glorified bodies. But it also means right here, right now, there's a life-giving impartation that comes after a season of temptation. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. The King James Version says by his own lusts. And lust is selfish desire. It's not just sexual desire. It's selfish desire. Then verse 15, when desire has conceived or when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin or it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And so that's inevitable. When we succumb to temptation, death is the outcome. Mental death, emotional death, spiritual death, physical death, ultimately the second death, which is both soul and body. Is there a way out? 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be a tempter, tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Somebody responded to me one time and said, but what if you don't want a way of escape? That's a big problem. You'll suffer consequences, though, if you don't attempt to get away from it. 2 Peter 2.9 says the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. So apparently God's working with you, God's fighting with you, God's gracing you. And the word grace is really important because grace is divine empowerment. And that's why the Bible says sin shall no longer have dominion over you because you're not under the law, you're under grace. And grace gives you the power to live above sin to resist it, to overcome it. And there's other ways God delivers the godly out of temptations. He can set up roadblocks. He can make things happen that make it impossible for the devil's strategy or some demonic strategy to prevail against you. But maybe, just maybe, that's why you should pray the Lord's Prayer daily and say, do not let me fall into temptation, because you have an enemy that is constantly strategizing against you, and so you need to put up a prayer barrier against that, right? Okay, the biggest difference in Christianity as opposed to other religions is an expectation of divine intervention in overcoming temptations. And of course, In Christianity, we have a standard with which to measure whether or not a a certain thing is a temptation toward evil, toward rebellion, toward something that is not acceptable in the sight of God. If you're a New Ager, you have no standard. You just go by your feelings. If something feels good, it's okay. If something doesn't feel good, maybe it's an error, but the word sin is never used. It's a mistake, right? 
All right. The last part of that phrase, though, is, but deliver us from evil. Some versions of the Lord's Prayer, some biblical translations say, deliver us from the evil one. And so we can take it both ways. Strangely, New Agers ignore evil or declare its non-existence. For instance, Shirley MacLaine, and I quote, said this, until mankind realizes that there is in truth no good and there is in truth no evil, there will be no peace. What? There's no good and no evil. How does she get that? Well, it's based on pantheism which is drawn from the majority of Hindus believe in that particular doctrine. I'd say over 50% of Hindus believe in pantheism, which is the belief that the universe is an emanation out of the Godhead so that everything has a divine essence. And at its core, at its root, everything is God. The tree is God. The cat is God. The dog is God. The flower is God. The flea, the, the tick that crawls up your leg when you're out in the yard is God. It's all a manifestation of God. Hmm. And so that means both evil and good are manifestations of God. Because if everything in this world results from that emanation, not a creation, but an emanation of God, then, then you've got to blur the lines and say, it's all God, and this is all just a lesson I'm learning, and it's all going to go back to Godhead eventually, and so it doesn't really matter, and I need to see it as an illusion. The Hindus call it maya, which means illusion, that that's not really a tree. If I saw it long term, it would dissolve away and become God, and so it is with every human being. So that's where they get this idea that there's no evil and no good that it's a unified whole. In fact, the yin-yang symbol out of Taoism represents that. You have the white teardrop and the black teardrop in a circle, and the circle unifies the two. And that comes from the Taoist belief that on an ultimate level, uh, ultimate reality or what could be called God, the force or whatever, is both good and evil. Because if you believe everything is a manifestation or an emanation of God, then God is both good and evil. And even if I was not a Christian, that would be completely unacceptable to me. That robs God of his integrity. That robs God of his purity. That pulls God down to our level and exalts us up to his level. We become divine. He becomes human. He becomes tainted. We become invigorated with divine life, uh, doctrinally speaking, if we believe that. No, the Bible says God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And the only way that can be true is if God exists apart from the physical creation. So, most religions strive to overcome evil simply by discipline, by human will, by character development, by making choices toward righteousness. But in Christianity, you have divine empowerment. As I mentioned a while ago, you have grace. God graces you to overcome evil. And what's irresistible to someone else may be very resistible to you because you have God's help. The Lord is our helper, the Bible says. 
I will not fear what man can do unto me, and I will not fear what this world can do unto me, because God is helping me through the minefield of temptations that this world offers. Christianity is like no other religion, because not only does God offer empowerment, God offers restoration if you falter. Because Jesus became sin for us on the cross, and he paid the price of death for sin. If you do fail, if you do yield to temptation, you hit the bottom, you despise yourself, you grovel in the dirt of self-hatred uh, for a season, and then you repent, and then you get right. You go to the cross, and you say, restore me, and God restores the joy of your salvation. He restores your peace. He restores your righteousness. You don't have that in other religions. If you're a Shintoist, or if you believe in Shinto, you just wash yourself, uh, ritual purification. And by washing your physical body, it helps your mind believe that you're cleaner inside. But in Christianity, you actually have the sense, the inner knowing. It's not just an emotion or a mental thing. It's an actual supernatural reality. You know you've been cleansed. You know you've been forgiven. That's why it's superior to every other religion. Every religion contains the golden rule. Uh, treat others as you want to be treated yourself. But in Christianity, you have the Lord Jesus Christ living inside of you who exemplified that law, that commandment being fulfilled, empowering you to walk in love even as he walked. It's a superior way of doing things. Now, as I said, some religions or some, rather, translations of the Bible. By religions, now I'm talking about different Christian denominations. Some translations of the Bible render that line, deliver us from the evil one. So I want to camp on that for just a moment. Many religions do not acknowledge Satan's existence. Islam does. Islam definitely recognizes that there is a devil. And and that he has a demonic network that works underneath him. Satanists, however, and this is really curious, Satanists ironically believe that Satan is not a conscious entity to be worshipped, or at least this is the doctrinal statement they put out. I don't know if behind the closed doors of Satanism they believe otherwise, but Satan is not a conscious entity to be worshipped, Rather, Satan is a reservoir of power inside every human being to be tapped at will. Uh, those who follow Anton LaVey's teaching, who founded the Church of Satan in Los Angeles, they embrace the original etymological meaning of the word Satan, and Satan means adversary. According to Peter H. Gilmore, who is a spokesman, apparently, or someone defining Satanist doctrine. The Church of Satan has chosen Satan as its primary symbol because in Hebrew it means adversary, opposer, or one to accuse or question. Listen to this line now. We see ourselves as being these Satans. The adversaries, opposers, and accusers of all belief systems that would try to hamper enjoyment of life as a human being. That's quite a twisted way of looking at things. 
What about Christianity? Well, Christianity teaches a literal Satan. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says, And you, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you he has made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, who now works in the sons of disobedience, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So Satan is referred to as the prince of the power of the air. Well, he's not jumping from one cloud to the next up in the atmosphere. It's a concentric realm. It's the second heaven where Satan and his demonic forces abide in this constant conflict between angelic forces and demonic forces seeking regional dominance and and of course, in individual lives as well. Jesus showed us the reality of Satan when Satan uh, used Peter to tempt him not to go to the cross. He said, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense unto me. You savor not the things of God, but the things of man. Romans 16.20 says, the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly, meaning he is an actual entity. And I'm going to end with my encounter. I actually have had two personal encounters with Satan. As I mentioned earlier, I don't believe Satan is with me every day. I believe Christians are people that terrify Satan. He doesn't like being around blood-washed, born-again believers because he knows we have authority over him, and we do. But his tactic is to, like a blowfish. Have you ever seen a blowfish that blows itself up much bigger than it really is? And it has little spines that stick out. And it looks terrifying in appearance, but it's really not that formidable. An, uh, an adversarial type of fish. Uh, and in like manner, Satan likes to try and prove that he's in authority to a Christian that doesn't understand his inheritance. Anyway, one night. I'd been saved about 15 years. I was laying in bed and woke up about 2 or 3 in the morning. And lo and behold, he, uh, I'm kind of in a halfway, not a dream state, but a visionary state. And I see this form of a man standing at the foot of my bed, a very dark cloak. He didn't look like the caricatures of Satan that you see so often. He didn't have horns, didn't have red skin, didn't have a pitchfork, didn't have a pointed tail. He actually was very handsome, dark, swarthy countenance, dark hair, and very, very dark eyes. In fact, that's what I recognized immediately. His eyes were so full of hate, so full of um, animosity toward me that they were like piercing me, like arrows. They were penetrating me, and his eyes were communicating to me. In fact, I heard his voice, though I didn't hear it with my natural ears. I heard it internally. And he said, in so many words, I'm going to ruin you. I'm going to destroy you. I didn't know how to respond at first. And then the Holy Spirit rose up within me. And I heard the sound of my own voice. Never opened my mouth. But I heard the sound of my own voice in the vision saying, uh, I, I, I conquer you, Satan, by the precious blood of Jesus. It is impossible for you to win. When I said those words in this vision that God gave me, Satan all of a sudden, changed all the guy. Up until that point, he had this smirking, arrogant grin on his face. But this look of terror came on his face. And 
I felt authority rise in me, and I said it even louder the second time. I conquer you, Satan, through the precious blood of Jesus. It is impossible for you to win. His eyes started melting into his cheeks. His face started melting into his neck. I felt the surge of authority again rising within me by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this only happens for those who have been born again and filled with the Spirit of God. And I said it a third time, I conquer you, Satan, through the precious blood of Jesus. It is impossible for you to win. And he melted out of, uh, out of the room altogether. From the shoulders down, I saw his whole body melt into the floor. And I realized then and there that he has no weapon in his arsenal that is a match for the blood of Jesus. And if you ever get into an experience where you experience the demonic world, or maybe you've indulged in kundalini yoga and you're having kundalini awakenings or some kind of, uh, I have a friend who was a master Reiki healer, and then she started having demonic manifestations in her life that were terrifying. All you've got to do is, first of all, repent of your sins, claim Jesus as Lord of your life, invite him into your heart, but then claim the blood of Jesus and satanic powers will be destroyed. That's why you want to pray, do not let us fall in temptation, but deliver us from evil and deliver us from the evil one, because he's given us weapons to do that. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, over and over again, he said, it is written. Uh, the devil said, turn these stones into bread. He'd been fasting for 40 days. And he tempted him with uh, the desire for food. And he said, it is written, Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then he took him to a high pinnacle of a temple and said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. See, the enemy even quoted the Bible in tempting Jesus. He'll do the same for you. He said, it is written, he'll give his angels charge over you to bear you up in their hands. And Jesus said, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And then finally, he took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said, all this can be yours if you'll fall down and worship me. And Jesus once again said, it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord your God and him alone shalt thou serve. And the devil departed from him. So not only do we defeat Satan, the evil one, by the blood of Jesus, we defeat the evil one and all his hosts of demons by the declared word of God and by the spirit of God that dwells within us and by the name of Jesus. Because when the disciples came back from going city after city, preaching the kingdom of God, they came back and told Jesus uh, that uh, even the devils are subject to us through your name. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And they were using the power of the name of Jesus. In the Hebrew, the name of Yeshua. So these are powerful weapons to resist evil, to resist temptation, to overcome in this world. Well, we'll get to the next line of the Lord's Prayer next week. But isn't this an amazing, amazing study? Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shreve's book titled In Search of the True Light. 
We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.